1: I will turn and see why the bush burns and doesn't disintegrate. Moses saw something unusual and he turned to see. He turned to see. Now, maybe there's something unusual going on in your life. You know, this is a good time to turn to see. When things are unusual, that's the time... To turn to see because maybe God is trying to use the unusual or God is trying to use listen, the bizarre. Because God can do some bizarre things. Read your Bible, I mean, just stuff you go, What's up with that? God can do some bizarre things, and sometimes God uses the bizarre or the unusual things to get your attention. Jesus has been known to use bizarre things in the Gospels. How bizarre is this? Jesus walks up to a man. He puts his fingers into his ears. He's like, got this fingers in this guy's ears. He spits on the ground and then he touches the man's tongue after he put his fingers in his ears with the wax still on his fingers. How bizarre is that? And and, and the man is healed. I mean, he goes away, he's healed. How bizarre is this? Uh, what, what was uh, Darren a couple of Wednesdays ago? Darren was talking about how Jesus walks up to this man, he spits on the ground, pff, takes some dirt, he makes clay, he plops it into the blind man's eyes, and he told the man to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, if I was the blind man, I'd be very happy to go wash mud and spit out of my eyes. How bizarre is that? It's very bizarre. And yet the Lord uses the unusual and the bizarre to get your attention because he healed the man. So sometimes it's time for us when something in our lives is is going on as bizarre or unusual, it's time for us to turn and see. What's going on in your life? You should be like John and turn to see what Jesus is trying to do in your life. And I think that if you take the time to not call your friends and not email people and not call the prayer chain, but just turn to see what God is doing, guess what? You'll get blessed and you'll find that you receive the revelation of Jesus. Oh, just turn and see. Maybe the Lord's trying to bless you. That's what John did. He turned and saw. It's important to turn and see. I mean, think about it. What if the shepherds were who were watching the sheep and the angels, they show up and they say, I've got good news. The Messiah is being born. You should go and see him. Well, what if they had not turned to see? They say, oh, we're busy shepherds. We're busy doing the shepherd thing. We don't have time to turn and see. What if they would have not turned and saw But they did. We know the story. And they went to Bethlehem. And what did they see? They got a revelation of Jesus because they saw the baby Jesus, that beautiful baby Jesus. And and what about the Magi, the wise men? What if they had not turned to see? When they turned, they, they saw a star and they followed that star and they went in to see Jesus. And what would the world be like if they had not turned to see and bring Jesus gifts of frankincense, gold and myrrh, What would the world be like? Our Christmas would be all messed up. Because I've got gold on my Christmas tree. What if they hadn't? It's important to turn to see. And what about Joseph? What if he had not turned to see? When the angel told him that the baby that Mary was carrying was the child of another man, he would have made a mistake. And Simeon, the old man, what if he had turned to see or hadn't turned to see the baby Jesus when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to him? It was a fulfillment of prophecy given to him. And of course, what about Paul, the apostle, if he never turned to see on the road to Damascus? Where would the church be? We wouldn't have two thirds of the New Testament. We need to turn and see what God is trying to say. And especially, especially in Times where things seem bizarre and unusual. And John turned to see in our text and he heard the voice. It must have been 3D virtual reality. And what did he see? Notice in verse 12, he says, I saw seven golden lampstands. And then in verse 13, in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, underline that, clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about his chest with a gold band, his head and his hair white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass or burnished brass, some of your Bible says. And if refined as if it refined in a, fu- in a furnace and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword and his countenance, why it was like the sun shining in its strength. Notice what John saw. Now keep in mind, the last time that John saw Jesus, he was a man walking on the earth And now John sees Jesus as the Son of Man. Now the Son of Man speaks of the fact that Jesus is relatable. He's the Son of Man. He is God and he is relatable. But also the Son of Man has an important prophetic picture or element. Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 and 14. I was watching in the night vision and behold one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him. And then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting. It's an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Notice Daniel went on to see in that text in chapter 7, the resurrected Jesus, just like John. And John says, I see Jesus. I've seen him. I see the son of man. And he's in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Now, the seven golden candlesticks, write this in your margin. The seven golden candlesticks is a reference to the menorah spoken of in Exodus chapter 25. And it reads this, you shall also make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be of hammered work, its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs, and flowers shall be of one piece. And six branches shall come out of its sides. Three branches of the lampstand out of one side, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. Now on the screen you can see a picture of the lampstand. I took this picture on my last trip to Israel. This picture is taken in the Jewish quarter in the old city of Jerusalem. This picture is a replica of the lampstand spoken of in Exodus chapter 25. This is a replica. Now, it is not pure gold. The inside of it is made of a metal, some type of metal. The outside, though, is pure gold. And it's there on display just a couple of blocks from the Temple Institute. This is a replica of what they hope to build In Jerusalem, when they establish the temple, when they rebuild the temple, they want to put the lampstand or the menorah back in the temple, just as it was spoken of in the Old Testament. The Jewish people today are planning on building another temple. They are planning on being able to worship in another temple. They are organizing. They have the best seamstress making all of the robes. They have artists all over the world that are shaping the breastplate for the priest. And even on that breastplate were 12 jewels. They have those 12 jewels and they've already sanctified them and prayed over them and set them apart for the priest to wear. The laver for them to wash their hands after the animal sacrifice is ready. They are raising the animals. The red heifer and the trumpets. They've got all that hand crafted and they are training their priests who they have already selected as purebred from the Levitical tribe. And the only thing that they're waiting on are actually two things. One, primarily is for someone to come and bring peace to the Middle East. For the man to come and say, okay, people, it's all right for you now to go back to temple worship and go and build your temple and bring peace to the Middle East. They are waiting for that. But also there's another thing that's kind of holding them up and that's the menorah. Why? Because they've got to build this menorah exactly as the scriptures Have said to them. And the problem with it is that the menorah that they must build is pure gold. Exodus 25, I just read it. It is pure gold. And for them to hammer out pure gold and somehow to miraculously get it to stand and get the arms to hold themselves up, that's quite a problem. Now, money isn't the issue, although we do know it's going to take them $25 million to build just that. Interesting. But it is a miracle, it is absolutely supernatural that the menorah is hammered out of one piece and that it stands there in the tabernacle. Very, very interesting. And notice the branches on the menorah on either side of the main stem or the vine. Now this speaks of Jesus and the church. You might remember in John chapter 15, Jesus said, I am the vine and you, Christians, are the branches. Jesus said, I am the light of the world, but you are also the light of the world. And he told us that we are to let our light shine so that men may see and glorify God. So to the Christian, the menorah in many churches you go to, or some churches you go to, they may have a menorah. We have one that we have here for communion, but they may have a menorah, and this menorah to the Christian is a symbol of the presence of Christ among his people in the church. Now, this is very important to us, and especially next week, as we're going to uh, begin in chapter 2 prayerfully Next week, this will really become meaningful because Jesus gives a message to the church at Ephesus and he warns them to repent or he will remove the candlestick or his presence out of its place and from the church. Very interesting. And then notice John, he sees the glorified Jesus standing in the midst of this lampstand, which is a symbol of the church. Jesus is in the midst of the church, you guys. Did you know that? Say amen. And the Bible says, get this, that where two or three are gathered in my name, he's there. So there are more than two or three here. Guess what? Jesus is here. He's in our midst. He's always in the midst of his people of his people. He's here. He's in the midst of the lampstand. And he's in the midst of the church. And like the high priest inspects the lampstand in the temple, so Jesus inspects the light of the church to be sure that we are clean and free from dirt and soot. And that light should never burn out and it should continue to shine. And then notice John, he sees Jesus. He's clothed with a garment down to his feet. Now, Any Jew reading this, immediate picture for them is high priest. You might want to write that there. Any Jew, any Jew reading this, they go, oh, high priest, garment down to the feet, high priest, not priest, high priest. Because what? Because the garment down to the feet or the long robe spoke of dignity and status and authority. And the high priest, he was the only one who would wear this long robe. And then notice also the high priest in the Old Testament, he would have a band around his chest that had golden threads woven through it. Jesus is better than the high priest. Hebrews, check it out. Jesus is better and higher than the high priest. Why? Because notice in your text, Jesus is girded about the chest with a golden band, not just a couple of threads. This whole thing is a golden band. But you can see that the band of Jesus is where this, it's, it's all golden, which speaks of him being even more royal. And then notice his hair, white like wool. Now, every time I read this verse, I think of when I first became a Christian, January 23rd, 1982. And you know when you first become a Christian, you're really excited, you got to read the Bible. And especially, I think, okay, now I'm a Christian, okay, I'm going to read the book of Revelation. Yeah, I'm going to uncover the deep and the hidden things of God in my first week as being a Christian. Yeah, that's what I do. So I'm reading the book of Revelation, and I get to this verse... His head, in verse 14, and hair were white like wool. And I thought, well, Jesus must have an afro. I I really, I thought Jesus, I said, and you know, you're a new Christian. I mean, you're a new Christian. Nobody didn't take me to the book of Revelation. Nobody told me that, understood and, you know, helped me understand. And I thought, well, Jesus must be a brother. I mean, not like a Christian brother, but like a soul brother. I mean, look, look, his hair is white like wool. See, it's right there. It's right there. See, I was convinced. But as you study the scriptures, you'll find out that this is a reference to Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. Take a look at it in your own time. The white hair speaks of the timeless wisdom of eternity. And the phrase white as snow is an emphasis to his purity. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18 Come now, let us reason together," says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be what white as snow. Man, as forgiveness as the blood of Jesus, and His eyes as flame of fire, from which nothing can be hid. His eyes see all, which enables Him to judge rightly. Jesus' eyes displays the fire of searching, penetrating judgment. All that Jesus sees is viewed right being tested by righteous fire. And his feet are like fine brass, which speaks of the fact that he is coming in judgment. Again, John recalling the verse in Daniel chapter 10, verse 6. Brass and fire in the Bible represent divine judgment, like the brazen altar in the temple was the place where the fire consumed the sin offering. Jesus stands in the midst, John says, to judge the churches and to judge the whole world system and to judge all those who are persecuting the church. And his voice, as the sound of many waters, God's voice is loud and strong and powerful. His voice is not a voice that you would talk back to. It's powerful, like Niagara Falls. You ever been to Niagara Falls? It's powerful. Jesus' voice is like Niagara Falls. His voice is like many streams converging together into one river and the river grows louder and louder until finally 194,940 cubic feet of water are over the falls per second. His voice is loud. He speaks with such power and authority. His voice must be heard. You know, people have said, you know, Pastor, I just don't hear the Lord. Well, you apparently are not listening. Amen. Because his voice is loud. He can be heard. His voice is loud and yet gentle. can even speak to your heart and speak to children. And in his right hand, there are seven stars. Verse 20 tells us what these seven stars represent. They represent the angels of the churches. The word angels can be translated messengers or pastors, referring to the leaders of the church. And then out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Now the sword speaks of the word of God. Write that in your margins. Speaks of the word of God. His weapon is his word. Now in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. That Sword in Hebrews chapter four is a tactical sword. It is a different sword than what we are talking about talking about here in Revelation. That sword in Hebrews is tactical, and it's small, and it's light, and it's precise. But the sword, this two-edged sword, and not like a snake's tongue, but the word of God, this two-edged sword that John is talking about refers to a long and heavy, broad sword. This is the kind of sword that can do some serious damage. This sword is used to kill people. And his countenance was like the sun shining in strength. His glory is so great and shining, it's hard to look upon him. It's the second time that John saw Jesus shining, Matthew chapter 17. John saw his face as shone like the sun. He is awesome and his light is awesome. And then notice in verse 17 through 19 in closing. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. See, that's what's going to happen when we see him. You know, people think when I see Jesus, I got a few questions for him. Really? You know, when you see him, you know what? You're going to go, whoa, whoa, Jesus. Now, if you're not a Christian, you're going to fall before him in shame. If you're a Christian, you'll be like, oh, Lord, we love you. We worship you. We've been worshiping you. And what we were doing on earth, we're now doing in your presence. You know us and we know you. We've been following you, Lord, and hearing your voice. And we know you. And Lord, we fall down before you as dead. Not dead. As dead. Because we worship you. The moment that we've all been waiting for. And then he laid his right hand on John, notice, and saying, said to him, John, don't be afraid. No need to fear. I'm the first, the last. I am he who lives, was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. I have the keys of hell and death. John, write the things which you've seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. John fell at his feet dead, just like Ezekiel, who saw the throne of God and Jesus, and he fell on his face before the Lord. John isn't cuddled up. You Remember in the Gospels, John was cuddled up to Jesus next to his breast. And, and just like, oh, Lord. And then he even wrote in his own Gospel, I'm the disciple that Jesus loves. And you guys are not. <laughs> Remember that? And now we see him. What's he doing? He's worshiping the Lord. His, his head's not on his chest. He's laying prostrate before the Lord. And Jesus says, John, don't be afraid of the things which you see. I'm the first, the last. I live. I was dead. I'm alive forevermore. I've got the keys to hell and death. You see, hell is not Satan do- Satan's domain, hell is not run by the devil. People think, well, when I get to hell, because they, they, some people know they're going there. I mean, it's unfortunate, but they do. Well, when I get to hell, me and Satan going to party hardy, me and my buddies. Party. I get to hell. There's no party in hell. Satan's not running hell. Satan has never ran hell. And Satan doesn't run anything, as a matter of fact. Jesus has the keys to hell and death. Jesus runs hell. Jesus runs everything. Say amen. Amen. Everything. Everything, buddy. Everything. Everything means everything in the Greek language, and it's all everything means. Everything. Jesus runs everything. Hell and death, heaven, earth, he's in charge. And then in verse 19, now you got to write this in your book, and then we'll close. This, this is the key. Verse 19 is the key to the book of Revelation. And most important for you to understand verse 19, because it unlocks the mysteries of the book. The whole book, as a matter of fact, hinges on this verse. I like to call it a heavenly outline, verse 19 is... The book of Revelation has three divisions. John, write the things you've seen in chapter one. Here's the the outline for you note takers, outliners. Write the things you've seen in chapter one, the things which are in chapters two and three, and the things which will take place after this, chapters four through 22. There's a heavenly outline for you, really easy, no need to struggle. Write the things which you have seen, chapter one, which are, chapter two and three, and the things which will take place after this. That's the Greek word, metatauta. After this, or the things that are coming. M E T T A, T A U T A. Metatauta, the things which shall be. What an awesome, awesome, awesome book this is! It's unbelievable. Jesus is the eternal, almighty God. John reveals that to us. He's the beginning of all things. He's the ending of all things. Everything is under his control. He reigns supreme. And don't be shaken and don't be afraid. Next week, chapter two, we'll hear what the man in the midst of the lampstand has to say. And most certainly, he that hath an ear to hear, Let them hear what the Spirit says to the church.
0: You have been listening to Salt and Light, a radio outreach ministry of Pastor Rodney Finch in Calvary Chapel, Cary, located in Apex, North Carolina. Join Pastor Rodney Monday through Friday at this same time. For information regarding service times, you can contact us at one 800 293-0923 Until next time, may you be salt and light.